the Advent, we're reminded that this is a season where we remember the groans of God's people waiting for God to act in a world of darkness. And all around us, there's people within our church, within our community, who are fighting back against the darkness in our world and attempting to be a light and bring goodness and hope to those who live in darkness. And uh, we're really fortunate to have uh, Nathan Benninger with us this morning. Nathan, why don't you come up? Um, I'm newer to Nelson, so I'm a little bit unfamiliar with Nathan and his work, although I've been playing catch-up this week. Um, your pet project is Pure Vita Foundation that's based out of here in Nelson. And so uh, we're really excited to have you here this morning, Nathan. I know you have an upcoming series of documentaries that are being shown this week. So first of all, welcome. And second, can you share a little bit about Pure Vita and uh, kind of plug these documentaries and why they're so important? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I just want to thank everyone for inviting me. Uh, Brenda Cavalier is actually a board member with the foundation, so she's she invited us to come, uh, me and Yoni. She's a young girl from Peru. Uh, I am a local boy. I've, I've lived here my, my whole life, and I, I did photojournalism for many years, and I realized that, like you were saying, that there is so, so much poverty outside of, in, else, in Canada also, but uh, outside, of, outside of Canada. And I, I came across Peru through a, a work trip and and I kind of wanted to make a difference with young girls in Peru. I, f- I felt like they were very very far back in in how they treated young women and how they treated uh, um, the family in their in the household so about t- about ten years ago, I started a, a registered charity in Canada, and uh, me and my wife. Which is Peru? She's Peruvian, and and about eight years ago, we opened our a safe house for young girls to come off the streets, and 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 we rescue them from abusive households and abusive situations, and it's such a amazing amazing night on Thursday because we actually have one of the young girls that have been with us for almost six years here in Canada for the first time. So um, we're going to showcase three documentaries uh, about what we we do and and a little documentary on Maria, my daughter, on her Christmas adventures. And uh, Yoni is going to finish the night by telling us a little bit about what she's been through in her life before the Puda Vida Foundation rescued her, so uh, I think it's going to be the, a very impactful but very uh, uh, family-friendly and eye-opening experience for anyone that would like to come, and um, I think it'll be a really, really cool night. So. so can you just give us where is it happening and how do people... Yeah. There's tickets. I think I've heard there's tickets, right? So where do people get tickets? Where is it happening? So it's at the Civic Theater at, uh, on Thursday, December 1st, 7 till 9. And you can buy tickets at John Ward Coffee. And you get entered into a draw for a month's free supply or at the door or online at uh, civictheater.ca. So. Awesome. And I would really encourage people to check out um, Pure Vita Foundation's site, just Pure Vita foundation.ca awesome information there Uh, just really commend the work that you're doing Nathan would you you be comfortable if I prayed for you and just a blessing over the foundation and what's happening on Thursday God thank you for people who are not giving in to apathy 
And I thank you for people who are striking out in bold ways uh, and taking risks um, to, to love and serve their neighbor. And I thank you for, for Nathan and his work. Um, much of it probably goes unseen, but for people like Yoni and the women that are served uh, in Peru, uh, they are a lifeline. And I just pray and ask for your blessing and your favor to be upon Nathan and his family and their work, that you would make the way straight for them, that you would cause just a, a tremendous amount of uh, support to rise up towards uh, this Thursday, God. Uh, financial support, uh, just awareness of this issue, maybe more people hearing about Pure Vida and coming on board. Um, I just, in looking over their site, just really encouraged by the work that they're doing. And so I just commend them to your care and ask that your, your hand of favor and blessing would be upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much, Nathan. Thank you. Super awesome. Yeah. yeah, let's give him a round of applause. So great. Now, where did I... Oh, there's my sermon. Oh. <laughs> that would have been a different kind of Sunday. Um... Well, for the third or fourth time this morning, it is Advent. I don't know if you guys have any Advent traditions. Uh, We kind of have Christmas traditions, but Advent is kind of new to us. Advent is technically the season before Christmas in the church calendar, but if you're not a part of a high liturgical church, everything kind of just gets subsumed into it. It's just kind of Christmas time. But Advent is a series of waiting. Uh, It's a word that means the, the arrival of something or the coming of something. And there's a kind of a dual meaning for us as Christians. We remember before Jesus came how God's people were crying out and saying, we live in this dark world. There's so much oppression. There's so much darkness. God promised that he was going to send a deliverer. And we're waiting. We're expecting. We're longing for this deliverer to show up. And then Jesus showed up and then began to establish the kingdom of God, this kingdom of justice, bringing love and mercy and grace and salvation. But then as Christians, we also even though Jesus has come, we are also anticipating the advent, his second coming, when he's going to come again and, f- and to fully establish his kingdom in a new heavens and new earth. And so it's really a period that as we move towards Christmas, we're trying to kind of incubate this sense of longing and remember that the, the state of things right now is not the end of the story, that Jesus is going to return and we long for his return because the dark and broken and sinful and distorted and dysfunctional things of this earth are going to be brought to an end. There's going to be no more tears, no more crying. Part of our kind of seasonal tradition is we put up a tree. So we did that this week. And actually, it was a pretty magical time. I snapped this picture of my son. And uh, it was, well, we kind of, we, we take the creative risk of letting our kids decorate the tree, which up to this point has been, potential to be a gong show, let's be honest. But it's getting really nice because uh, our oldest are kind of creating color schemes and stuff. So we put up our tree this, this year. We also put up our nativity scene. This is a tradition for us as well. We have a nice little... Na- is it not working? It's not working. This is my big joke, Marvin. This has to work. <laughs> this is kind of the thing. This is the only thing people are going to remember from this morning. There we go. There's my nativity scene I put up. We went, we went off script this year. We did a nativity for millennials theme. And uh, we always try to mix it up. No, this is not my nativity scene. But I wouldn't, 
I wouldn't be upset if someone got me that nativity scene for Christmas. I think that's funny. I think it's great. I don't know if I like selfie Mary and Joseph the most. It's, it's the subtle things, right? Like it's the, uh, I don't know if you saw in the picture, there's a little uh, solar panel on the, uh, on the roof. It's just, it's the little things, people. It's great. So good. For a lot of people, Christmas has become, you know, you have this collision of all these cultural factors, consumerism and busyness and stress. And like that nativity scene, Christmas has kind of come, become very confused for people. It's very challenging for more and more people to recognize what this season is supposed to be. For many people, stress and stuff, those things have eclipsed the power and the promise that this season invites us into. You know, if I were to ask you this morning, does the thought of Christmas genuinely thrill you? What, what would be your reaction? Like thrilling, like from the inside out, like, yes, I'm pumped, I'm excited. Do our hearts swell with renewed hope and renewed purpose as we move into the Christmas season? Do we find ourselves awestruck when we come across a nativity scene? Maybe not that one, but maybe a more traditional one. Do we, do we, do we pause for a moment and find ourselves humbled and enchanted by the story that this is inviting us into? If our answer to these questions is no, then it might be a symptom of the fact that the scandalous message of Christmas hasn't really gripped our hearts, which is really heartbreaking because if the Bible's claim is true, if God did become one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, then that actually has a tremendous amount of thrilling implications for us, for our loved ones, for our world, for our future. This morning, we're going to begin a new series called The Thrill of Hope, and through it, we're going to explore the ramifications of what's called Jesus' incarnation. That's a, a word that means enfleshment. And I hope through this series, we're going to discover how a deeper and richer and more robust understanding of the Christmas event leads, leads all of us into an entirely new new parameters of hope, a new horizon of what is possible for each of our lives and for our world. This morning, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 1. John is one of the Gospels. If you go to the New Testament, you can look it up in the appendix if you're unfamiliar. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first 18 verses. I'm going to be kind of teaching through these fairly quickly. This is one of my, this is one of my favorite Christmas Advent incarnation scriptures. It doesn't get a lot of Christmas uh, airtime often in churches because it's, um, we tend to go right into the kind of the, the Christmas story. But what John is doing here is he's giving us a bird's eye view from the perspective of cosmic history for us to understand what is happening in and through this Christmas event. So I'm just going to be reading and offering some observations as we go. This is a really dense passage, though. We could spend six or seven weeks on these 18 verses. So I'm really just going to kind of um, seed out some really important ideas here and hope that over these uh, next few Advent weeks, they kind of take root and grow in your own heart. So John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. Now, right away, that's a very explosive start to this gospel. John's about to lay out the entire story and significance of Jesus, and he starts with, in the beginning was the word. Very, very, um, very 
scandalous, very big, it's very bold. It might not strike us like that. Maybe we've heard this in a lot of church contexts, candlelight services. So we're kind of being lulled. Oh, this is really sweet. This is an explosive start to John's gospel. Because he's drawing in two stories, two meta worldviews, and saying, this is something I want everyone to listen to. What do I mean by that? If you are a Jewish person in the first century, and someone starts a story with, in the beginning... What are you thinking of? Genesis. Genesis 1. Right away. That's the first book of the Bible. That's, that's, this is the whole story. This is how the whole thing gets started. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is a story about God. John's saying, Jewish people, this is a new kind of beginning. We're going to go back into and through our story in a new way. Something has happened that has radically reshaped how we understand the nature of God's created activity. But John also says, in the beginning was the word. And the word that he employs in Greek is logos. That's significant. Because if you weren't a Jewish person um, and you didn't believe that uh, the one true God over Israel created all that is, what you believed as a Gentile, which was a category that just meant anybody who wasn't Jewish, you believed your basic creation story was that um, the source might have said God, likely not, the one, the eminence, created all things through Logos. Logos is what a Gentile, uh, non-Jewish person understood to be the fundamental, in, in Greek philosophy at least, the fundamental substructure which gave order to everything. That when Greek philosophers and, and uh, looked out into creation, they said, there's a lot of chaos in this world, but there's a lot of order. Where did that come from? Well, in the beginning, there had to have been a kind of Logos, a kind of unifying, clarifying substructure to everything out of which this order and our ability to just engage in this complex world came from. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, he is saying this is a story for everybody. This has ramifications for you if you're Jewish, God-fearing Jewish person. This has ramifications for you if you are not a God-fearing Gentile. This is a story for everybody. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Ooh, this is pretty interesting. John's inviting us into a paradox. This word was with God, so it's distinct from God. It's not totally collapsed. You don't call it God. It's with God. But then he says the word was God. Okay, getting into some mental gymnastics here. That's kind of strange. Greek philosophers never thought of the logos as God, But Jewish thinkers didn't think that there was anything with God in the beginning. It was just God. In the beginning, God created everything. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. Okay, notice, don't go over it too quickly. He, it's a personal pronoun. That's strange. This, This word is now a he. It's not, it's with God, so it's not God, but it is God. He was with God in the beginning. This isn't just an abstract idea. It's not the force. It's not some cosmic principle. It's not a disembodied logos. It's a he. Verse 3, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing that has been made. Sorry, nothing, without him, nothing was made that has been made. All things are made through him, this logos, this word. He's the conduit of creation. He, John says, is the source of all life, all order, all goodness. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light for all of mankind. In him was life and light. Those are two really loaded terms to certainly a Jewish person. Life 
is a term that refers to and captures this idea of God's intentions for reality, shalom, flourishing, fullness of a harmonious holding together of the way things are supposed to be in God's good world. And light is a reference to revelation. We live in darkness. We grow up around blindly. Light helps us to see. Light comes from the outside and illuminates our exterior so that we can say, oh, now I know how to navigate the world. You can navigate the world, but it's always um, dangerous and awkward and challenging in the dark. But when you have light, uh, I see the way things are. This is really helpful. I now know how to engage life. And this person, in this person, in their identity, is both life and light. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness hasn't overcome it. A lot of pagan um, philosophies believed in something akin to kind of a yin and yang philosophy where darkness was equal to light or that chaos was actually the substructure of reality. That's why even though things tend to look kind of good on the surface, most of life is red with, with red and tooth and claw. It's a vicious, violent, dangerous world because chaos and darkness is actually the norm and kind of flits of light are the exception to the rule. John says, this is a person who's light, and this is a light that overcomes the darkness. The darkness is threatened by this person, not the other way around. Darkness is threatened by this person. This light can't be consumed. It can't be overcome. This is a light that penetrates and overwhelms darkness. Now there's a shift. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's not the same John who's writing this book. This is a reference, as we'll see, to John the Baptist. He, John the Baptist, came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He, meaning John the Baptist, he wasn't the light. He came only as a witness to the light. He came to, to point to it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So notice a few things. Number one, this light that illumines, that brings revelation, that brings light. The author, John, and John the Baptist are where they definitely agree is they say that light is not found within. That light is coming from the outside, from somewhere out there. There's a light that is invading our world because we're in darkness. And I'm a big fan of introspection. I'm a big, big fan of self-awareness. But one of the bold claims that John throws down in his gospel right away is that the light that we need and the light that has life and the kind of light that overcomes the darkness isn't found through an inward journey. It is coming into the world. Not, and we didn't, uh, and not because we, we asked for it even, is this is an act of grace invading our darkness. Notice that John says, there have been other lights, like that's the inference, that John wasn't a light. He said, but the true light was the one that John the Baptist is pointing to. There are other lights. There's obviously other examples of um, goodness and love and charity and mercy and light. But this John says, this was capital L light. This was the true light. And now the picture's getting clearer because if we know the biblical story a little bit, the author, John, has tipped his hand to who this word is. Maybe to this point we've been a little bit confused and John is really starting to connect the dots for us because who's the person that John the Baptist pointed to and said, this is the light of the world, this is the Lamb of God? It's Jesus. 
So now we're being asked to rewind through all these things that we've just been told about this word and to connect them to Jesus, who at first pass we might want to just say, well, yeah, that was a good like, religious teacher, good, uh, really influential first century Jewish figure, but John is saying, no, if that's the way you're understanding who Jesus is, that's a, that's a diminution of who he is. It's a lessening. That's a superficial, inaccurate understanding. This is the one in whom all things were made. This is, the, this is the one in whom there is light and life. Verse 10, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is the great tragedy of Jesus' life, right? That this light, this love, this life came into the world and was rejected, not just by anybody, but he was rejected by his own people, by the nation of Israel. The people who were asking, actually longing and asking for light to come into the darkness. When that light came, it was, you know, kind of a, oh, yeah, no, we don't want that kind of light. Yeah, can we have a do-over? <laughs> can we have a mulligan? That kind of wasn't exactly what we were looking for. So he's rejected by his own people. But John says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's a, again, really dense, really, um, that's a kinetic sentence. There's a lot going on there. This is a word, first of all. This is a person. This Jesus is someone that you have to receive to those who received him, who embraced him, who didn't reject him, who didn't hold him at arm's length, who didn't intellectually um, hold him at bay and saying, yeah, that's kind of interesting, some neat ideas, but I'm kind of living my life. And so, kind of neat. I, I take some of his ideas and I, I accessorize them in my worldview. No, to those who fully embrace who he is, to those who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's a controversial thing to say in first century Judaism. Because to a first century Jew, the only people who are allowed to be children of God are true Israelites. Because you're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. You're an Israelite. You're the people of God by ethnicity, by birth. That's your right to claim that. And therefore, any Gentile um, is not a child of God. They might, they might be, God loves them for sure, but in the religious hierarchy, there's Israel, there's the children of God, and then there's kind of everyone else. So there is kind of a, a two-tiered system. But John says through this person, anybody who received him, Jesus gave the right to be called children of God. And that's huge. Through this word, through this person, Jesus gives the right to equal access to intimate sonship that Israel had with God. Now anybody can have. Even people who have, who have walked uh, from any Jewish standpoint in a moral, uh, God-dishonoring, uh, just morally and ethically filthy God not at the center life, no matter what's in someone's background, John's saying, for a Jewish person who would say, there's just, that just, there's just a wall there. There's the children of God and then there's people who are like that. 
And John is saying, this Jesus, for those who received them, he brought those people into God's family. The people who were overcome and wounded and broken because of the world's darkness, maybe because of their own sin. He gave them the right to become children of God. Massive, massive. And then he says, children not born of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. He's saying, notice the emphasis here. Jesus gave that right. It was a gift. They didn't earn it. It wasn't because they had the right ethnicity. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm an Israelite. So it's just mine by birth. Nope, that's not how they got it. They didn't become a children of God because of human effort, like right thinking or religious willpower. They, they were so good. They, they, they pulled themselves up by their moral bootstraps and God said, well, now you've prov- proven that you belong in my family. So now you're in. No. It says Jesus just, out of grace, they were born of God. Not because, not in response to anything that they did. Not because of their worthiness. Jesus took anyone, even the most unworthy, and said, you're now a child of God. Because of grace, because of his love, because of who this Jesus is in his life and in his light. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And here John, it's like, okay, if you haven't put the pieces together, I'm going to bring dot one and dot two as close together as I can. This word that I'm talking about is Jesus. And this Jesus was pre-existent before, Jesus wasn't, didn't start to exist when he was born as a baby in a manger. He had a pre-existence. He was God, but he was with God. It's kind of not so subtle allusion there to the Trinity, the idea that there's one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with each other, but they're all God. But there's a distinction there. It's, it's a mystery, but John is pointing to that. And he says, this word became flesh. That's where we get incarnation from. This word incarnated, the second person of the Trinity, and made his dwelling among us. And the word for dwelling in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Old Testament that's used here by John, is tabernacled. And that's significant to a Jewish person. Because when God gives his people the law, he also says, I'm going to tabernacle with you. You are my people, and I'm going to draw near to you. I can't fully live in your presence because I'll obliterate you because I'm a holy God and I'm totally pure and I can't have anything that is not holy close to me. But I'll set up a system in a way that you can relate to me where I can draw close to you and I will set up a literal tabernacle that you will take with you. And ultimately that tabernacle gets transferred into the temple and here's John saying, Jesus is a new tabernacle. And really the capital T tabernacle of tabernacles. The full reality and self-disclosure of who God is is experienced in and through Jesus. Verse 15, 15, John testified concerning him, meaning Jesus. He cried out saying, see, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me, right? John's pointing to Jesus' preexistence. Jesus, John is saying, you can't, this is a different category of person. You can't say he's just a great prophet. He's an amazing moral teacher. He's a, he's a new kind of king uh, or a new functioning, a new hybrid of a priest king or a prophet priest king. He's something greater than all of those things. 
Verse 16, out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. From him, it's just a deluge of grace and mercy and love. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now that's significant because to a Jewish person, the law of God, what's given in the Torah, our culture thinks of rules as like lame. Rules equals bad. Rules equals suppression, oppression, unnecessary constraints. Our culture values a lack of rules, openness, and we equate freedom with a lack of constraint. Ancient people didn't think this way at all. They thought that was incredibly narcissistic and foolish, uh, and doubly so people who were uh, the Jews, because they said, we didn't even make up our own law. God gave us his law. He said, you're going to be my people. I've rescued you. I'm going to make you a light. This isn't about you. I'm not just rescuing you and pouring all my love into you. I'm preparing you so that through you, every single other nation on the earth is going to be blessed. And I've given you my law. And and what other nation can say that? What other nation, nation can say our law, our way of understanding who we are and how we're to function as a society, has come from God himself? He says, you're the only one I've given this to so Jewish people were like, God's law is amazing. And they really, on one level, saw God's law as the fullest expression and self-disclosure of what God wanted for the world. So they were like, this is amazing. The law is a good thing. Sometimes even in the Christian church, we can talk about the law as if it's something like God's crazy, terrible commands that just browbeat people into submission. That's not the way Jewish people understood the law. That's not the way that we should read the law either. Leviticus 26 Um, No, that's not where I want to go. Oh, yeah, it is. I'm just in the wrong verse. Wrong page. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 13. God says, he's speaking to Israel. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. Other translations say, I enabled you to walk upright. I am your God. You were, in the grand scheme of things, you were nobodies. You were slaves in Egypt. You thought of yourselves as nothing. I came in, I rescued you. Why? Because you're so amazing. Because you were so religious. You were so pious. Ben Myers and his cannon fodder, summation of Deuteronomy, he says, Why did I choose you? Because you were so great and mighty? No, I chose you because you were so lost and you were so lowly. But through you, I was going to display my splendor. I was going to display my glory. So God says, I gave you my law to teach you how to walk upright. You're a dignified human being, every single one of you. Now learn to act like it. You've had generations of slavery. So you think and you walk around like you're in servitude and subjugation to the greater powers of this world. I'm bringing that to an end. I'm going to teach you and train you how to walk upright with dignity. I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to write it on your hearts eventually, eventually, and you're going to be the conduit of my blessing to the world. You're going to be the fountain out of which my justice and love and grace um, pour out into the darkness. So when Jewish people thought of the law, they were like, praise God, 
how lucky and blessed are we that we get to read through all these laws and realize this is how much God cares about us. He's teaching us to walk upright. That's awesome. But John says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. And he's doing a contraction, not of this was bad, the law was bad, and then grace and truth was awesome. That came through Jesus. So kind of like the Old Testament God what a party pooper. Brutal. But don't worry, that's over now. Now, it's, now God is happy somehow and it's all different. That's not what the contrast is. The contrast is God gave his people his law and it was a good thing. But it was preparatory and it was insufficient. What we needed wasn't just God's instructions. If spiritually we were just, I heard someone say this week, if spiritually all we, all we were having was a bad hair day, we're pretty much okay, but there are just some things that are joint. Then the law would be helpful. Then you could say, oh, okay, tweak, I need to, okay, I see, I, I can self-correct. And if that's all we needed, then God doesn't have to do anything more than the law. But he gives us something else. This word incarnate, this Jesus. And this Jesus is the bringer of grace and truth. We don't just need spiritual or religious instruction. That's good and that's helpful. We need, our, our issue goes deeper than that. Our issue goes deeper than religious behavioral modification. The law is important, the law is good, the law is helpful, but it couldn't supply the full measure of grace and truth that we needed. Verse 18, no one's ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And this is the cherry on top. I mean, if, if you're starting to think now, all these things that John is saying, this applies to Jesus, and some of them are really audacious, and let's just be honest, pretty outlandish. He existed before his birth. He's God. He's with God. He's not God. He's the conduit of all creation. And in him is the light, is the life. He says, Jesus alone, because he is God and because he has this intimate relationship with God the Father, Jesus alone is the full disclosure of who God is. He's the full disclosure alone of what God's will is. He's a full disclosure of what God intends for his world. And we see that through his life, his death, and his resurrection. That, but starting with the Christ event, the, the, his coming, the incarnation, sets in place this domino effect where God is fully revealing his character and his heart to us. This is kind of old school. Do you guys remember the 1995 song, What If God Was One of Us? Do you remember that? It was like, it was every, when in its heyday, every fourth song on the radio, I swear, was that song. It was just burned into my and neural pathways in my brain. Joan Osborne, what if God was one of us? And it was a song that kind of played at this hypothetical. What if God was one of us? You know, just a slug like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And the lyrics are interesting if you study them. It was kind of this philosophical thought experiment of what it, how would it change how we lived, how I understood myself, how I understood God, the nature of reality, if God was one of us? if God could kind of take on a form that was accessible to us, how would that change how we looked at each other, looked at ourselves, looked at the world? And see, what John is saying here is that, that is, that's no longer a hypothetical question. That's no longer a thought experiment. John's claim is that that has actually happened 
in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only has it happened, we have seen the glory of this. John says we saw his glory, and and the Hebrew word for glory means weight. It doesn't just mean something shiny and pretty, glorious. It means something heavy and significant. John's like, this happened, and we saw with our own eyes his glory, how significant this life was, how weighty, how disproportionately glorious this life was to any other life that has ever lived. And he's full of grace and truth. He doesn't just have grace and truth. There's definitely grace and truthful aspects about him. No, it's just the sum totality of who he is. I hope you can see how even a passage like this, just, this, just these 18 verses, these verses alone, and there's a lot more, these verses alone would be enough to constrain a Christian to push back when someone says something like, well, basically all religions teach the same thing. I, I can't get there because no other religion teaches this. Nothing really even close Christianity beginning to end is built on the proclamation and declaration that Jesus wasn't just a prophet, a teacher, had graceful things to say, even had truthful things to say, pointed us towards a path, pointed us towards a way, modeled a way, taught us. All of those things, while on one level they're true, they come out of a larger thing, which is that he actually was the truth. He was the life. He was the light. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is a radical divergence from almost every other religious worldview. And what John is putting before us, everybody in this room, myself included, is to say, if this is true, and that's obviously a question in process, We might have doubts, we might have suspicions, we might have questions. But if this is true, if this is who Jesus is, that little cute little baby in a manger, if that's what's happening here, then everything has to be reconsidered in light of that idea and that proclamation. If God was one of us, John Osborne was right. You would have to go back and through all the aspects of your life and say, how would that change this? How would it change my understanding of what the nature of reality is, what the telos, what the end goal of everything is? What's my telos? What's my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? Who am I? What's my hope? What do I presume God or the gods or the universe to be like? Is this fundamentally a loving, gracious universe or, again, a universe red in tooth and claw? Am I, how am I called to live amidst this world of darkness? See, if God was one of us, if in one life the fullness of God is mysteriously joined with the fullness of humanity in a way that wasn't just a light, one of many, but the light, then how foolish would we be to fail to seriously observe this life and the teachings and what he said, his message? How darkened would our hearts have to be to hear this claim and to just simply arrogantly dismiss it? How lost would we find ourselves if we didn't earnestly contemplate its ramifications? God has become one of us. Now how should we live?
And that's what I want to do as we move towards Christmas. I want to, in small ways even, unpack the ramifications of the word becoming flesh because that holds tremendous domino-like effects for all these areas in our lives, economics, sexuality, how we view and understand our work, um, recreation. I mean, it's all tied and it all is reshaped by the truth of the incarnation. See, the incarnation is a hugely important part of the gospel, the central message of Christianity, that something good has happened in and through the, uh, the incarnation and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But if our understanding of the gospel is small, then our Christian lives will be small too. And if our understanding of the incarnation and what it means is essentially just localized to the nativity scene, oh, that's cute, that's really nice. I'm glad God came. That's really sweet of him. If our understanding of the incarnation is small, the expression of our Christian life and the expression of our Christian love is going to be small too. But I don't want to live a small Christian life. I, I I don't want to live a diminished expression and, and there are dark places in our own hearts, in this community, in this world, um, that challenge me to recognize I, I, don't, I don't have the luxury of just playing fast and loose with this and just being like, oh, this is cute, this is neat. The stakes are really, really high. I want to enter into, I want to understand the full weight the full kavod, the full glory of who this Jesus is and to allow that weight and significance to reshape my life and my love and my purpose. So who do you see when you look at that little baby in the manger? What do you see when you look at that little baby in a manger? The next time you pass that nativity scene, you see a little Christmas card and all of its Photoshop graphic design glory. What do you actually see? John says, in that baby was life. And that life was the light to all mankind. And so this Advent season, as we move towards Christmas, I challenge us all to move towards the light, the true light. And let's have the courage to be changed and transformed by his unique life. And as a result, I pray that we would find the thrill of hope rising in our hearts and in our lives. Let's pray. God, would you open us up to the depth and truth of the incarnation and what it means for us? God, whether we are a non-believer, a doubter, a skeptic, would you meet us where we are and draw us to yourself? Whether we're early on this journey of faith of trying to understand who you are and what this means, whether we're uh, seasoned in the faith, and it may be grown cold or apathetic towards some of these truths, for all of us, God, would you reveal the fullness of grace and truth to us during this time? Amen.
I'm going to send you off with a benediction, but